0: Welcome back everybody as we continue in our uh, Parsha insights in the Torah and this week we are in Torah portion Balak or Balak as it's pronounced in Hebrew. It begins in Numbers chapter 22 verse 2 and continues on through chapter 25 verse 9. Uh, Balak is one of my favorite Torah portions. It has a lot going on in it, a whole variety of things. It's got more themes and and a plot uh, details uh, than the Princess Bride does, I think. It's just amazing. And it continues on to the next Torah portion. So it's uh, quite a roller coaster ride, but it's packed full of information and insights and, and challenges for us. So I just pray that God will use this in all of our lives and remind us of things that uh, we so easily forget and that we would not make the mistakes that we see in the two villains of the story, which are who are Balak and Balaam. Now, this Torah portion begins in chapter 22, verse 2, but I would like us to back up one verse, which is the last verse of last week's Torah portion, but uh, the first verse of chapter 22, and it is this. Then the sons of Israel journeyed, and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, opposite Jericho. This is the last encampment from the time Israel left Egypt until they come up to the Jordan crossover. This is their last camp encampment. This is encampment number 42. In uh, Numbers chapter 33, it lists all 42 encampments. This is the last one. That means that everything from this point in the Torah until the end of the Torah, until we get to the book of Joshua, everything takes place here. And I want you to remember this context because they're on the shore of the Jordan River. And as they look west, right over the other side of the Jordan, there is Jericho. And what is the first city they conquered? Under Joshua, when they crossed the Jordan River and began the conquest of the land, it was the city of Jericho. And so I want you to keep in mind that the things that happen here, the last testing, the last great failure of Israel, right before they cross over to the goal, takes place here. You know, I've been to Jericho, and uh, right there where the Jordan River goes past, it's probably not any wider than the street you live on just a very narrow border between Moab and Israel and it's so easy for us when we come in view of the goal in life when things are right there we begin to relax and then failure comes in and uh, so I'm going to challenge you that wherever you're at in your life if you're close to reaching some goal in your life Don't let down your guard as Israel did. So stay strong, and even though you can see the goal, there's still work to do. And stay strong, stay faithful, and continue on and cross over into the the destiny God has for you. Now when we begin to read in this Torah portion, chapter 22, verse 2, we read this. Balak, or Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorite. Now, who are the Amorites? Well, at the end of last week's Torah portion, we see Israel conquer these two great enemies. Sichon, the king of the Amorites in the south, and Og, the giant, and the ruler of the Amorites in the north, and the Bashan. And uh, these two enemies and their vast armies are considered pretty much undefeatable. And yet, Israel defeats them. And if you recall, Sihon, everything about him and the names that are in the description of his area uh, have to do with human reasoning. Human reasoning. When human reasoning is submitted to the truth of Torah, to the spirit of God, it can be a friend. But if it's not completely submitted as a servant to God's will, human reasoning is the greatest enemy of faith. And we have to defeat that. Og, on the other hand, uh, everything about him and the names that we found associated with them have to do with comfort, with ease. And this is the other great enemy we must conquer. We must defeat Sihon and Og. This addiction to human reasoning and the addiction to ease. We must conquer them. We must defeat them if we're going to cross over into the place that God has destined for us to live, the place of of, of victory and of fruitfulness. So, Balak had seen what Israel had done to the Amorites. Verse 3, Moab became very frightened of the people because it was numerous. And Moab was disgusted in the face of the children of Israel. That word disgusted is the same word we find back in Exodus chapter 1. And that is when um, the Pharaoh that Joseph and the people of Israel crossed over to Egypt, uh, that Pharaoh who was in charge, he died. And it says a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, the wicked Pharaoh. And um, when he looked at how Israel had multiplied, he became disgusted with them. This is a disgust that's not just uh, a feeling of ickiness. It's a disgust that comes from fear. And uh, so it's the same word that's used here. He was disgusted in the face of the children of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now the congregation will lick up our entire surroundings as an ox licks up the greenery of the field. Balak, son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, Balaam is how it's pronounced in Hebrew, but we'll just say Balaam, son of Beor to Pithor, which is by the river of the land of the members of his people to summon him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. Behold, it has covered the face of the surface of the earth, and it sits opposite me. So now please come and curse this people for me, for it is too powerful for me. Perhaps I will be able to strike it and drive it away from the land. For I know that whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is accursed. This is a fascinating, at least to me, sequence of events, because it really reveals the human mind and how it works. It's how my mind tends to work, and probably yours too. So let's follow this progression. I call this the ghost of Sihon. Remember Sihon? He was the king of the Amorites in the south. And everything about him, everything about him has to do with human reasoning. And so this is his ghost. This human reasoning is alive and well in, in Balak and, and the, the people who are associated with him. So it begins with human reasoning, verse 2. It says, Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So, he sees how Israel has, de- has defeated Sihononog, he's defeated the Amorites, and, and so Balak begins to think to himself, we're in trouble. His human reasoning tells him that we are in for some real difficulties. What he didn't realize, though, is that Israel had no intention whatsoever of attacking Moab. No intention whatsoever. In fact, God had commanded them not to attack Moab, to leave them alone, to go around them. And uh, Balak was ignorant of this truth. And human reasoning is flawed. One reason is because it's, it doesn't have all the facts, doesn't have all the truth. In fact, if you look on down a bit, we'll see that, um, oh, I, it's a, not a passage I put on the screen. Let me get it here. If you read in Deuteronomy 2.9, it says, the Adonai said to me, Moses is speaking, says, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the sons of Lot as a possession. The Moabites were Israel's cousins. They were descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And you can look in Genesis to see the story of, about surrounding Moab's birth. And so God says, leave them alone. They're your cousins. They're, they're a hot mess, but you leave them alone. They're relation. But Balak somehow either didn't know this or he had forgotten it. And so now he's fearful that Israel will come and attack them, defeat them as they did Sihon and Og. So his human reasoning is based on completely faulty uh, assumptions. So what's the next thing? What does human reasoning lead to? It leads to fear. In verse 3 it says Moab became very frightened of the people because it was numerous and Moab was disgusted in the face of the children of Israel. Led to fear and fear will always lead to anger. Unless that fear is absolutely paralyzing, the fear will lead to anger. And when it says he was disgusted in the face of the children of Israel, he was angry that there were so many of them that they were so close and his fear led him to anger. You show me an angry person. I'll show you a fearful person because anger is always caused by fear, fear that God's not going to come through, fear that your family, your friends aren't going to come through, um, fear of the unknown, fear of the future. Um, fear of financial failure, fear of failure of your health. And people who are fearful uh, become angry. They become angry about it. And we need to search our own hearts and minds. And if you have anger in your heart, it's based on fear. And that fear is based on your imagination running away, away with you. And it's based on partial facts, partial truth. I mean, if you want to take a quick look at reality, it's this. You're going to die, okay? You're going to die. It may be through an illness or car wreck. It might be through, who knows? You're going to die, all right? So get used to that thought. And then when you die, it's like you wake up from a a, a dream, maybe a nightmare in some cases, and you realize, what was I so worried about? If you can keep that thought in mind, why should you ever be afraid of anything? So anyways, stretch your perspective. I find that when I start worrying, I need to expand my perspective, my peripheral vision, look at circumstances from God's point of view, and then peace once again settles in my heart. Human reasoning leads to fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to lying thoughts. Your imagination goes crazy. Look what it says in verse 4. Moab said to the elders of Midian, now the congregation will lick up our entire surroundings. No, they wouldn't. They had no intentions to. As an ox licks up the greenery of the field. And none of that was true. I want you to think for a moment. When did you allow fear and anger to make your imagination just go crazy. You know, our imaginations abhor a vacuum. And when we don't have truth, our imagination will, will step up and volunteer to fill our minds with falsehoods, with distortions. And how many times I become angry with somebody or people become angry with me because they didn't have the facts, they were going on rumors or half-truths, and so they developed this whole scenario about what reality is, and the scenario is utterly wrong, completely wrong-headed, but they, in their minds, it becomes reality, and they act upon it as if it's actually true. And it's embarrassing, and there's shame when we realize that what we had so strongly believed in our minds was absolutely false and groundless. We've all been there, haven't we? Then those lying thoughts lead to foolishness. What was the foolishness here? Well, if you look at verse 5, it says, he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor. And uh, it said, behold, a people has come out of Egypt. Behold, it has covered the surface of the earth, and it sits opposite me, so now please come and curse this people for me. Didn't Balaam have the common sense? Didn't he hear the, didn't he get the memo that Israel didn't just come out of Egypt? They were delivered from Egypt by the mighty hand and the, and the strong outreached arm of God. Didn't he hear about the plagues that God had sent? How God had destroyed uh, Egypt's cavalry there when he parted the Red Sea? Later, when we Uh, encounter Rahab in the book of Joshua she was aware of these things and she lived further away she lived across the river in Jericho but she was aware of the things God had done how did how did Balak miss this or was he being selective in what he wanted to believe but he was so foolish as to think if I have Balaam come here he can speak a curse against Israel And then we can defeat them in war. And then you wonder, why didn't you come and ask Balaam for a blessing? he says, I know who you bless is blessed. Why did you say, Balaam, I want you to bless me? Because I'm thinking about going to war against Israel. But no, he'd rather curse Israel. What foolishness. It's, It's utter nonsense what he does. And of course, that foolishness leads to cursing. And we know the story that every time Balaam went to curse four times, he went to curse Israel. Uh, Every time he he went to attempt that, blessing came out. Actually, the fourth time was not an attempt to curse. He just went ahead and and gave Balak a freebie. He just went ahead and gave him a, a fourth prophecy. But all the prophecies were so positive. They were such incredible blessings for Israel. And this did not make Balak very happy at all, as we shall soon see. I want us to understand something about Balaam. According to the sages uh, of Israel, Balaam was of the same or even a higher prophetic gifting or talent than Moses himself. You know, in Deuteronomy, God says, there shall not arise in Israel another prophet like Moses, or there shall arise one in Israel but there was no other prophet like Moses in Israel. But among the nations, they say Balaam was a prophet like Moses, but he was not Jewish. He was among the nations. Balaam was an incredibly gifted prophet. And I don't think we appreciate what an impact Balaam had on the ancient world. I want to show you a uh, photo here of part of a plaster wall that was discovered back in 1967. It's found on the wall of a temple in Deir Allah, which is in Jordan. And this dates back to around 800 B.C. Around 800 B.C. This would have been shortly after the days of David and Solomon. And uh, this is the oldest inscription that we archaeologically that we find that names a personality in the Torah. And the person who is named here, you can see in the rectangle, is Balaam, son of Beor, right there. And this is part of a, a writing, what they can uh, decipher of it, and what they can put together, because it's very fragile, because it, it is, as I said, plastic. It's, um, it's from a part of a, uh, a record of a night vision that Balaam had. And so there he is named. In writing in a place in Jordan, which is modern-day Moab, uh, where the Moabites lived, and, um, and and there he is. So, hundreds of years later, after Balaam died, his prophecies and his writings, his words, were still uh, given a high place of honor among the people of Moab. Another interesting thing, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points this out. When the telegraph was invented back in the 1840s, I think it was 1844, the very first telegraph message was sent. And the man who sent it, he tapped out with the telegraph key, what hath God wrought? Those words were the words of Balaam in one of his prophecies. You'll find those words over in chapter 23, in verse 23. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel, What has God done? What hath God wrought, as it says in the King James? So even the first telegraph message were the words of of Balaam. And of course, in our morning prayers, we have those, those beautiful words, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places O Israel. Once again, one of Balaam's prophecies. Balaam was, a, was a, an incredible prophet, an amazing prophet. But I have a spoiler alert for you. In the end, Balaam dies, Balaam dies, and he comes to a very sticky end. Because even though Balaam had this incredible prophetic gift, and if the sages are right, it was at the level of Moses' gifting, or even a bit higher. But even so, he was an amoral man. He was a man who was not righteous. In Numbers 31, verses 7 and 8, we, uh, we learn about the death of Balaam so they made war against Midian just as Adonai commanded Moses and they killed every male. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. And why did he come to this end? I mean, after all, even though he was hired to curse Israel, every time he spoke, blessing came out of his mouth. So why did he deserve this? As I said, Balaam was a wicked man. He was an unrighteous man. Three times... The apostolic scriptures warn us about Balaam and the dangers he posed and that we not, uh, and when we encounter these same kinds of dangers, we not give in to them, to be aware of them. And when he could not curse Israel, what he did is he took Balak aside and some of the others, and it says, if you go to chapter 25, It says, Israel settled in the Shittim, which is also part of Moab, and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. They, the Moabites, invited the people to the feast of their gods. The people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods. Israel became attached to Baal Peor, so they began to worship Baal. And the wrath of Adonai flared up against Israel. This will be Israel's last big test, big failing, big spanking that God gives them before they cross the Jordan. This is the final one. It was extremely serious. And the reason the Israelites did this, the reason the Moabites sent their daughters in to entice the Hebrew men to worship uh, Baal and the idols of Baal, is because we're told in Numbers 31.16, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against Adonai in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of Adonai. Many Israelites died because of their involvement with the gods of Baal, the gods of Moab. And the reason they got involved is because Balaam counseled the kings of Moab to send their best-looking women in, to lure the men with sex, and to worship their idols. We have to realize something. Spiritual gifts do not equal spiritual maturity. This is something that we learned when we were studying 1 Corinthians. And there's another thing I want you to learn from this as well. None of the cursing that Balaam tried to bring against Israel. And even if he had succeeded in speaking curses, they would have bounced off. They would have had zero impact upon Israel. God has told us several places. Let me give you a couple quotes. Um, in Proverbs 26.2. Like a sparrow in its flitting about, like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. In other words, a curse cannot affect a righteous people. We're told this several times in in Scripture. You have nothing to fear from the curses of the enemy. You have nothing to fear from people involved in the occult who may try to put a curse on you. If you are living a righteous life, if you are in covenant relationship Relationship with God. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. That's Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Adonai. And their vindication is from me, declares Adonai. Curses simply don't work against godly people but what does work is when we allow our walls to be breached and we allow the enemy to come in to our camp to come into our homes to come into our families then all bets are off what is spoken against us and done against us from the outside cannot hurt us but we are our own worst enemies when we put out a welcome mat to the enemy and to lies And through our televisions and through the internet, through our reading material, through the movies we watch, through the the things that the, the habits we begin to indulge, then what we do, we invite the enemy into our camps. We break down the walls from the inside. And this is the thing that can sow such horrible destruction in our lives. And then our spiritual communities. Again, the enemy can do nothing from the outside. But when we invite him in, all bets are off. Now, when Balaam receives messengers from Balak to go and curse. Israel, he says, well, wait here, I can only do what God tells me to do. And he goes and he talks to Hashem. He uses God's name, yad Vaveh. He has a connection with God. And God spoke to him. And, he, and God says, who are these people with you? He says, oh, they're messengers from, from Balak. They want me to go and curse, curse Israel. And God says, they're a blessed people. You will not go with them. You will not curse Israel. So Balaam passes on the message, and they go back to King Balak. Balaam wasn't pleased. And so again, and possibly several times, the Hebrew is a little iffy, uh, but there might have been several times he sent more messengers to Balaam. But finally, he sends a group of messengers and Balaam once again goes, he says, wait here, I'll go ask God. And this time God says, go with them, but only speak what I tell you to speak. But Balaam's heart, being as crooked as it is, All he can think about is the money he's going to get. He doesn't really care if Israel is blessed or if Israel is cursed. If Balak and and the Moabites are destroyed or whether the Israelites are destroyed, he doesn't care. He doesn't have a dog in this fight. But if he can make some money, that's all that matters to him. And I believe it's because of this covetous attitude in his heart. God sends an angel with a sword in his hand to kill Balaam. Now, as they're going along, Balaam is riding his donkey. And it says in verse 22, God's wrath flared against uh, flared because he was going and an angel of Adonai stood on the road to Satan. Now that word there is the word Satan, le Satan, to Satan him. What does the word Satan mean? It means to be an adversary. To be a hindrance and uh, and so here we even see an angel of God being sent to be a Satan so to speak to Balaam he was riding on his Eton and Eton is a, is a, a female donkey and his two young men were with him by the way it's interesting that there's a, another case of a man a prophet Going on a mission, but this is a mission from God. And he has two young men with him. And along the way, God seeks to kill him. Do you know who I'm talking about? If you say Moses, you're exactly right. When Moses is on his way back to Egypt, he took his wife Zipporah and his two young sons. And... um, And along the way, God seeks to kill Moses because he had not circumcised at least one of his sons. And it's like as if God's saying, how can you go to lead my son, Jacob, Israel, out of Egypt if you have not even brought your own son into the covenant? How can you serve my son if you're not doing the same with your own? And um, so... Zipporah steps in, circumcises the son, casts the foreskin at Moses' feet, and says some harsh words to him that are very, uh, very cryptic, but then God relents. So we see a very similar thing here. And we see Moses riding on a donkey as we see uh, Balaam riding on the donkey here. So that's something that you might, want, uh, you might find interesting to explore on your own says, he was riding on his eton, his she-donkey, and his two young men were with him. Verse 23, the she-donkey saw the angel of Adonai standing on the road with a sword drawn in his hand. So the she-donkey turned away from the road, went into the field, Then Balaam struck the she-donkey to turn it back onto the road. The angel of Adonai stood in the path of the vineyards, a fence on this side and a fence on that side. The she-donkey saw the angel of Adonai and pressed against the wall, and it pressed Balaam's leg, his foot, against the wall. And he continued to strike it. And then there's a third time. The angel of Adonai went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn right or left. The she-donkey saw the angel of Adonai and just crouched beneath Balaam. Balaam's anger flared, and he struck the she-donkey with the stick. Adonai opened the mouth of the she-donkey, and it said to Balaam, The donkey's talking now, right? What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? Balaam said to the she-donkey, Because you mocked me. If only there were a sword in my hand, I would now have killed you. The she-donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your she-donkey that you have ridden all your life until this day? Have I been accustomed to do such a thing to you? He said, Well, no. Then Adonai uncovered Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of Adonai standing on the road with a sword drawn in his hand. He bowed his head and prostrated himself on his face. So the great and mighty prophet Balaam finally could see what his dog donkey was seeing all along. How embarrassing. Here he is, he's supposed to be this this high and mighty prophet that's being hired by the king of Moab to go and curse the people of Israel. And yet his donkey knows more than he does. And I find these three instances of the donkey saving Balaam's life very interesting. The first time is pretty mild. Balaam's going this way, but the donkey sees the angel, so the donkey veers off the path and goes into a field. He veers off course. He's not going the way Balaam wants him to go, and so the donkey gets a beating for his troubles. They go on a bit further, and now they're in a road where there's a wall on each side of the road, and the... The angel standing staying there in the road, so the donkey wants to get a, uh, around the angel. And so it squeezes up against the wall, and Balaam's leg gets smashed up against the wall. So he beats his donkey again. Then they come to a place where the walls were very, very narrow, very close together. There was no room to pass, and there's the angel straight ahead with a sword in his hand. So the, the donkey just lays down, and now he really gets wailed on by Balaam. And then this is when the, the donkey speaks. <clears throat> I was always fascinated by this. And I remember over the years, I think, you know, my circumstances often go that way when I am not going the direction God wants me to. And uh, there are times when, when, I'm, when I'm living in, in, in close relationship with God, I'm doing his will, and I'm in close fellowship with him. And it's like, as I go through life, the wind is at my back. Things go smoothly. There's a blessing. But when I decide to do things my own way, it's like my circumstances want to veer off the path. My circumstances don't want to go where I want them to go. And, uh, and I get frustrated. I get angry. And if I keep forcing my circumstances, then I begin to experience real pain in my life, like when Balaam's leg was smashed up against the wall. And I get even more angry. And then, if I continue in my stubborn rebellion to demand my own way, my circumstances collapse under me, then I'm really ticked off. And what... I fail to see, and maybe if you bear witness with what I'm sharing here, maybe our circumstances see God more clearly than we do. Maybe our circumstances are more aware of his presence and of his will than you are and and I am. We're not to use circumstances as, as guidance of what God's will is. But oftentimes, I've found that when I am following God's will, circumstances will fall in place, effortlessly. And over the, the years, I'm now 69 years old, over the years I've begun to recognize when I'm, I'm fighting against circumstances and this, this, this resistance is not something God has ordained for me. And, I, and then I back off and say, Uh, something's wrong here because things should be going more smoothly if this is of God now don't get me wrong when you're doing God's will the enemy is going to come and try to hinder he will come and satan you and he will throw hindrances and attacks but his attacks his hindrances have a certain flavor they have a certain quality to them that are not the same as what we see here with the donkey and we need to learn how to discern between the two Uh, And so when the enemy comes to hinder, that's one thing. That's to be expected. But on the other hand, when you're doing God's will, there should be an opening of doors. There should be a smoothing of the way. There should be blessing to where things fall in place. Even with the attacks on the enemy, things are falling in place and you realize if I just keep walking, everything's going to be fine. And I find the hindrances that come from the enemy often are accusations spoken by other people or the temptation to become afraid. That's usually the flavor of the enemy's hindrances in the text. If you just keep walking ahead, things fall in place. You know, it's interesting. I uh, was checking out the word for donkey here, and in Hebrew it's spelled, let me get a pen, it's spelled Aleph. Tav, Vav, Nun. atone Atone. This is the word for a female donkey. But if you rearrange the letters of this word, you get the word Tav, Nun, Aleph, Vav. And it spells the word Tanu, which means... Condition. The conditions of something. Conditions of your, of your walk, of your, your life. And if you take that last letter and just shorten it a bit from a vav into a yud, it becomes the word tanai, which is the Hebrew word for circumstance. This is not coincidence. I really do believe that everything about this donkey is a picture of circumstances that refuse to go our way because we are refusing to go God's way. And if you are finding yourself in a really rough patch and your circumstances are completely opposite of what God's blessing looks like, then maybe you need to listen to what your circumstances are saying to you just like Balaam had to listen to what his donkey was saying to him. And the donkey's basically saying, is this typical behavior of mine? Is this the way I normally operate when you want to do something? Well, no. And you need to ask your circumstances. Is this the way my circumstances normally are when I'm walking in, in fellowship with God? Is this what, how they use, things usually go when I'm obeying God? And no, they're not. So maybe you need to ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see things from his point of view. Open your eyes to your own motives of your own heart. And then to grant you repentance. And God may say, go back home, or he may with man says, okay, now you go with the men, but now you're ready to do things the way I want you to do because your heart has been adjusted and your willfulness has been broken. And so now you're in a position to speak my words. So it's up to God what happens at that point. Now, in the apostolic scriptures, as I mentioned, we're given three warnings about Balaam. Balaam, again, is this massive figure in the the word of God, in the Torah, and also in the minds of the New Testament writers. So let's look at each of these three. The first one we'll look at is in 2 Peter 2, verses 15 and 16. This is called the way of Balaam. And he talks about, especially in the last days, how people forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gains, that love of money, loved gain from wrongdoing. But was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. The prophet's madness. Isn't it something to think that this is a genuine prophet who is mad? He's insane. Because unlike Moses, who had a loyalty to God, a love for God, and a love and loyalty for his people, Balaam had neither of those. He had this incredible gift from God, amazing gift from God, to speak to God, to hear God's voice, to know exactly what God wanted done. And yet to live such an unrighteous, unholy life, and to be held up in the scriptures as an example of how not to live, it's madness so the way of balaam we can call love of money and beware of people and i know i often harp on this but beware of people in the media and in, in faith communities who are continuing to proclaim god's word but they're doing it because they want to get wealthy and rich avoid these kinds of people and if you find yourself addicted and i use that word purposefully, to a teacher whose teachings you love, but they are wanting to do it because they just want to get rich off of you. They're going to get more and more wealthy. They're going to get more jets and bigger ones and bigger houses. Something's wrong. And you will eventually find, even in their teachings, the seeds of destruction. And uh, you'll find falsehoods embedded even in their teachings. This is the way of Balaam. And I'm not questioning that their gift isn't from God. I I have no doubt that it is. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. But just because you have a gift does not mean you're spiritually mature. And every gift, whether it's the gift of prophecy or the gift of intelligence or the gift of music and art or the gift of whatever, that gift must be used with wisdom. It must be used in alignment with God's will and God's word or it will be misused to bring great destruction. So the way of Balaam, this is the first one that we're looking at that we need to avoid, the way of Balaam, which is the love of money. When you go on to the book of Jude, the short little one-chapter book, it says this, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, remember Cain who murdered his brother Abel, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So here he's pointing out three villains, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. That's quite a study to do, these three villains of the, the Torah. But Balaam's error. I used to, when I taught on this Torah portion, I would define Balaam's error as no fear of God. And that is still true. But I've broadened it out a little bit to say no loyalties, no loyalties, whether those loyalties are to God or to man. And the reason I did this is because uh, this week I read a brilliant essay by the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Brilliant, brilliant man. I love his teachings. And he wrote an essay about Balaam called The Man Without Loyalties. The Man Without Loyalties. He was neither loyal to God, nor Baal. He wasn't loyal to Balak, or to Israel, or to the Moabites. He was a man completely, totally on his own. A man who was interested only in his own welfare, only in his own desires, only in what he wanted. He was a man devoid of loyalties. And this is also based on his name. Here's how the name Balaam is spelled in Hebrew. Beit Lamed Ion-Mim. Balaam. But in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin 105a, it says, Balaam was so called because he was a man without a people. See, Balaam, they're saying, is made up of two words. The first two letters, I'm sorry, yes, two words. The first two letters, Beit Lamed, are short for below, which means without. And, of course, the last two letters, I and Mim, spell the word people. So, below, um, without a people. A man without loyalties. We are to beware of this error of Balaam's. We need to be people of loyalties. First and foremost, to God. We are to, be, to love him with all our heart, soul, and, and strength. We are to take his commandments and put them on our hearts and teach them to our children. We need to be loyal to him. But the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. We need to have a loyalty to our families, to our spouses first and foremost, our families, our faith communities... We need to be loyal to the people. We need to be connected with them, but we live in a day where there's this incredible temptation to just live your life all by yourself and you can do it. We live in a time we can actually do it. You don't have to leave your home for anything. You need food, it'll be delivered to your door, you need clothing delivered to your door, Energy it's piped right into your house. You don't have to leave your house for anything anymore. And because we live in fearful times, that temptation to live unto ourselves becomes very, very strong. And you know how it is. And when you're hurt by people, our tendency is to behave like sheep. You know, most herd animals, when there's something traumatic that happens, they gather together. Sheep aren't like that. When something traumatic happens, they each go their own way. And when someone pulls away from the community, lives life on their own, that's a pretty strong sign that something's happened. That spiritually, they are going through a real testing, a real tough spot. Where logic, where any kind of basic wisdom tell you, if you're going through a tough time, find someone strong you can connect to so they can help you. We as sheep, we want to separate from the community. As if that's smart. That's never smart. In Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, let me give you a little background here. Hebrews was written, I believe, and most scholars believe, uh, not that I'm a scholar, I don't put myself in their company, but uh, most scholars believe that Hebrews was written while the temple was still standing. But it was only going to be a, a few short years before the temple would be destroyed by the Romans. And if you're not Jewish, if you're not raised in a, a Jewish community, it's, it's difficult to appreciate what a central focal point the temple in Jerusalem was. It was the heart and soul of your faith. It was God's house on earth. And the writer of Hebrews realized that soon that temple was going to be destroyed. And it was going to be a traumatic thing in the Jewish community and even among the Messianic Jewish community. And so he writes the book of Hebrews to bolster their faith, to strengthen them, to prepare them for this event that's right around the corner. And um, the the advice he gives them is also good advice for us in these last days. And the writer tells us this, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In other words, he's saying, here's what you need to do. You need to be Thinking, considering, strategizing, plotting. What can you do? What can I do to stimulate my brothers and sisters toward two goals? Toward love? What can I do to encourage people to love one another more? And to good deeds? What can I do to spur them on? To greater achievements of love and good deeds we should be plotting how we can help one another with that and never underestimate the power of just a kind word an encouraging word a pat on the back a note of thanks just uh, dropping a a, a little note in the mail and telling people you're thinking about them you're praying about them you're praying for them this These are tremendously powerful spiritual tools if we will use them. So these are things we should do. But here's something we should not do. The forsaking of our own assembling together. Do not forsake that. Now if it's impossible for you to gather with other believers, especially on the Sabbath, then then you have an excuse. It's all right. But if you can gather with other believers on the Sabbath to pray, to study and discuss the scriptures, to have some fellowship together, if you can do that, but you're not doing that, you're putting yourself in danger. And you're going against what the scriptures are telling us to do. And I understand so well the temptation of how wonderful it is just to be left alone, to not be bothered. And you know, during this time where Beth is now meeting in small groups, you know, we, at, at the church building in Wadsworth, there are small groups meeting there. Then all through the Akron area and north and south, there are small groups, there are groups meeting everywhere. And there's less and less excuse for not gathering together with other like-minded believers. Don't neglect this. Don't forsake this. I just beg you for your own sake. Don't do this. And I also implore you for the sake of the community not to do this. Because the community needs you. You have insights. You have perspectives. And you have A spark from God that we don't have and we need. And when you deny us your fellowship, you're robbing us of something God wants to give us but will only give us through you. So I'm asking you to repent of this, to change, to plug in, become part of some group. Makes no difference how little or how big. That's uh, neither here nor there. But you need to be with other people. You need to be a part of a community. I mean, if we're going to spend eternity together in the New Jerusalem, should we practice getting along now? So he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, because this can become a habit. as a hard habit to break. I know people who get in the habit of just doing their own thing by themselves, alone at home, and it is a habit, it's like an addiction that is hard to break. But you have to break it, as is the habit of some. But again, encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, what is the day? The day that he sees approaching is this date that the temple would be destroyed. But there's a day approaching for us. It's a day when this world would be turned upside down again and again and again. And uh, we've been through one of the the labor pains of Messiah with this whole COVID stuff. And now we're getting a little bit of a breather. But the next pain will be more severe. And are you ready for it? Are you making taking steps now to strengthen yourself and to prepare for whatever the next thing is? Is it will come. The day is approaching. But the day approaching for us is not, a temple being destroyed. It'll be it'll be maybe life as we know it, our culture as we are used to being destroyed, but we're looking to a temple for a temple that's going to be rebuilt. We're looking for a temple where God's presence will one against one, once again dwell with us. What a day that's going to be. Well, we have one more of these. So we have the heir of Balaam. And before that, we had the way of Balaam. way of Balaam is love of money. There, of Balaam is no loyalties. And then the third one is the teaching of Balaam. And this is in the book of Revelation. And notice these three warnings about Balaam are in Peter, Jude, Revelation. These are books that are very prophetic, looking towards the end times. And as we approach end times, and I believe we're right on, <coughs> maybe, excuse me, threat, stepped over the threshold of the end times. These warnings about Balaam are particularly important to us. Remember, when does Balaam come on the scene in the Torah? When Israel is right there, Jericho's across the Jordan. They have reached the goal. All it is is a matter of stepping across, going through, and they're in the land. That's where we're at because the kingdom is just around the corner. It's not far away. But this is a point of great danger for us we don't heed the warnings of this Torah portion and of these passages that warn us about Balaam. So the teaching of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, Revelation 2.14, Yeshua is dictating a letter here, and he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. What is that? Who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. One of the things I do find very disturbing, it's not because I'm an old fogey. I'm just old, but I'm not an old fogey. One of the things I find very disturbing in the faith community today is such a lax attitude towards sex. This is not right and we demean ourselves when we demean sex. We make it something casual that is being indulged in whenever we're in the mood with whoever we want. Sex is for marriage. It must be kept inside the covenant of marriage, protected and beautiful and healthy and strong. That is where it belongs. This incredible gift of God belongs, in a picture frame. It belongs in the parameters of the covenant of marriage. And I see that covenant being broken over and over. And our young people more and more tend to think that this idea of no sex before marriage as being something outdated, <coughs> excuse me, something obsolete. No, sex with whoever you want to have sex with whenever you want it, that's the old-fashioned way. But when the Torah finally came along, marriage became the new way. Marriage is the new thing. Free love is as old as the hills, and it's as old as the flood and before. But holy matrimony, this is the new thing the new thing God has given, the better thing. And uh, let's not let go of that. Let's not do that. This lax attitude towards sin and immorality is a very strong temptation in these last days. So fight it. Just strive and purpose in your heart and soul to be a more righteous person, not less. And I think we read already in Numbers 31, 16, behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespasses against Adonai. So the teaching of Balaam is basically this. Who needs righteousness? Eh, we're saved, right? We're blessed. And um, life is good. Don't be so uptight about what's righteous, well, I'm not uptight about what's righteous. I'm committed to it. I live a righteous life. And one of the things that helps me is the realization. I have, a, I think, an inflated realization more than many, that I am going to stand before God to give an account of my life. For some reason, that is a very strong realization in me. And for others, it doesn't seem as strong. I pray that God makes it as strong in you and stronger than it is in me. So you realize you will stand before God. You will give an account. I don't want you to be ashamed when you do. I want you to be strong. So, one last spoiler alert and we'll be done. 24,000 Israelites die in the end. Yeah, Balaam dies. But he takes 24,000. 24,000 Israelites with him, 24,000, not because of his curses, not because of any occult practices that he did, but because he counseled the enemies of Israel, a way of getting Israel to open up to invite them in. Be careful what you invite into your life and into your homes. There are four prophecies Balaam speaks, and often when I teach this, we focus on these four. Here, I'm just listing them. He speaks four prophecies. Two of them are in chapter 23, and two of them are in chapter 24. Each one has a theme, and people over the years have, have identified these four themes as the wilderness period, the second prophecy, the conquest of the land, and the enemies of Israel. Third, the settling of the land. And then fourth, my favorite, the messianic era. So these are things I'm giving you to discuss and study. And so here are your discussion questions. <clears throat> First of all, and I asked this in the email this week, where do we find another talking animal in the Bible? Compare and contrast these two creatures and their messages. Um, it's not too difficult to figure out what that other animal is, but when you look at the, um, the conversations, we find that the conversations take part in two, in two parts. We find the conversations that the animals start with asking questions. We find that with De- Balaam's donkey, it led to four great blessings of Israel. But with the other animal, it came to four curses. Two were literally curses, but the other two... Look as nothing like curses. I think you can almost call them curses. Uh, the next question or next uh, exercise from memory: Describe the way, the error, and the teaching of Balaam. Don't look back. Try to remember. And if you're in a discussion group between the three, the uh, your group, you and the others, recall these three. Keep them in your mind all the time. You'll need these three warnings for the days ahead. Third question, what are the dangers of avoiding fellowship with other believers? We didn't go into the dangers, but can you figure them out? Number four, give an example from your own life. This should be fun. Give an example from your own life when fear made your imagination run wild. We've all been there. And you can have some fun with this, but uh, don't lose sight of the lesson. Your imagination can be your best friend or it can be your worst enemy. If your imagination is informed by truth, it's good. But if your imagination is simply filling in where there's a lack of truth and facts, oh my goodness, watch out. So uh, have some fun discussing that. I also have uh, the notes here, and I have three examples in the back of Balaam's error. So you might want to look at those and, um, and, and discuss those as well. So let's close in prayer. Our father and king, we thank you so much for this amazing and valuable Torah portion that speaks to our times. And I pray, father, that all who hear this teaching will take it to heart. That we will not fall into the habit, and if we have, we will break the habit of just being secluded spiritually. Of not being in fellowship with other believers. It's so important in these last days. And Father, I pray that we would always keep in mind the warnings concerning the, the, the teaching of Balaam, the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam. And we would not fall prey to these things. And Lord, as Israel stood on the banks of the Jordan, seeing the goal just feet away, Lord, I believe we're close to your kingdom arriving. It's almost within grasp, but Lord, this is a place of incredible danger for us, because we can grow lax, and we can be—we can let our guards down and invite the enemy into our homes. I know, Lord, many people hearing this have done that already. Dear God, help them to make mid-course corrections, to expel the enemy from their marriages, from their homes, from their faith communities. And then to repair the walls and to repair the gates and to keep the watchman alert so that the enemy stays on the outside where he can do no damage to us. So, Father, forgive us, deliver us, strengthen us, bless us, and open our eyes, Father, so we can see what the donkey saw, so we can be aware of your presence in our lives, moment by moment, each day. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.